So economists look at that and say, yeah, like that's how economic growth happens. You do more with less. You have that idea. That's really the only sort of truly um, the source can, that can be said to be the source of economic growth. Welcome to Act in Line, a product of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Eric Cohn, executive producer. In this episode of Act in Line, Dylan Palman, Acton Research Fellow and Executive Editor of the Journal of Markets and Morality, talks with Dr. Clara Piano, Assistant Professor of Economics at Austin PA State University, about her recent paper, Familial Liberty, Property and Family in Late Scholastic Thought, presented at Acton's third annual academic colloquium. Their wide-ranging discussion spans a host of relevant questions, such as, what is the connection between family and property? What insights do late scholastic theologians have for us today? And what does modern pro-family policy get wrong? You can find additional resources in the show notes for this episode, as well as find previous episodes of Acton Line on our website at acton.org slash actonline. And if you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Act in Line is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Hello, and welcome to Act in Line. My name is Dylan Pommen. I'm a research fellow here at the Acton Institute and executive editor of our journal, Markets and Morality. I'm joined today by Dr. Clara Piano, Assistant Professor of Economics at Austin P. State University. Her research focuses on family economics and law and economics. She also serves on the editorial board of the journal Markets and Morality. Clara, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So you recently presented a paper titled Familial Liberty, Property and Family in Late Scholastic Thought at our third annual academic colloquium here at Acton. Um, I'd like to dig into the details since that title alone involves quite a lot, uh, but let's start with this. How did you come upon this topic? And you know, what, what is your personal history with this research? Yes, so I have been interested in the late scholastics and specifically like the economic thought of the late scholastics uh, since I was an undergraduate student and I took a history of economic thought course. Um, and what happened is I realized in, in writing another paper, it was, it was just really focused on their economic discoveries, but I realized that there were these unique, uh, approaches that they took to arguing for property rights. And sure enough, when I would dig into the literature, they're, you know, quoting Aquinas, they're, they're thinking about, uh, their, their context with specifically the discovery of the quote new world and a lot of the conflicts that went on there. And I, um, I really think, um, the way I frame it in the paper is sort of uncovering a different argument uh, for private property that's unfamiliar to the one that we um, usually hear about, at least our economic students are taught in our textbooks and um, has sort of come through more in um, the property rights literature in economics. Um, and this argument um, from the late scholastics and Aquinas really focuses actually on um, the family and the use of private property as 
an efficient thing in society that helps us fulfill our obligations to one another. Hmm. So uh, most people today date the beginning of modern economics with Adam Smith. Um, yeah, you know, as you've mentioned, in, in recent years, the late scholastics have received significant credit and attention for anticipating some of the major principles found in his Wealth of Nations. Um, but, you know, you, you kind of touched on it a little bit, but, but who were the late scholastics? What did they know and what didn't they know about economic science as we know it today? The late scholastics were a group of professor priests. Um, they were uh, Dominicans, Jesuits, even Augustinians, just they came, you know, a pretty um, diverse group um, from from school, like a thought of school, excuse me, a school of thought perspective. Um, and they were teaching and writing in 16th century Spain. So at this time, um, there was a lot of trade going on um, with the um, New World. And there was also the Spanish conquest of uh, the New World and the Indies. Um, and so they were really concerned with a couple of things. They were concerned with um, kind of international law. So the founder of the school, Francisco de Vitoria, um, who was trained at the University of Paris and really brought over scholasticism to Spain, um, he wrote a lot and has sometimes been called the father of international law because he's trying to figure out these questions about um, uh, what does it mean to conduct a just war um, when you've just discovered right, this this new land, this new these new people, um, and things like that. And so you find some. Um, actually really interesting and robust arguments for private property there. He's arguing that um, the Indians, uh, the native peoples that they encountered have rights to private property, even though they're not Christian, even though they're not, um, you know, maybe they seem a little bit um, uncivilized, all of these things, they still have a right to private property. Um, and then um, you also have other thinkers who are really focused on giving advice to merchants trading in the new world. So one of the ongoing conversations that was happening both in the classroom and in the confessional. So uh, Catholics are, um, are are supposed to go right into a confessional and, uh -huh. and confess their sins regularly and um, usually receiving some advice about how to avoid um, these pitfalls in the future. And, and so uh, you find actually a lot of this economic, um, these economic discoveries, I think is the right word for it, because they are talking about the both private property, but also where sort of prices come from, um, uh, where money, <laughs> the role of money in society, inflation and things like that, the quantity theory of money. And you find some of this in handbooks for confessors and handbooks for merchants sort of aimed at business ethics. So they weren't setting out to do economics for sure, right? Um, and, and definitely not in as, as conscious of a way that like Adam Smith was contributing, right, to asking um, about uh, the wealth of nations. But um, they ended up using economic principles um, to justify um, some of their ethical conclusions to make sure that they were really giving, um, you know, good advice to these people. Um, some of their uh, teachings, I should say, some of their writings actually got them in trouble with the king. So they are also an interesting case um, of, uh, and, and I guess part of this uh, legacy of economists to, to give advice that sometimes people don't want to hear, right? So that... Yeah. Um, Times can be um, unfriendly and landed them in prison sometimes. So that yeah. that's the school. Yeah, I think uh, Wanda Mariana, for example. Uh, his, yes. Yep. Criticism of uh, devaluing the the coins. Um, early early analysis of inflation and why it's a bad thing. Um, mm -hmm. 
I think a lot of people today, and perhaps a lot of economists themselves, think of economics in liberal, individualistic terms. Uh, but the economist Frank Knight pointed out, and the nature of the case is the quote, liberalism is more familialism than literal individualism. Some sort of family life, and far beyond that, some kind of wider primary group must be taken as they are, as data in free society at any time. So what did the late scholastics get right about the relationship between family, private property, and economic analysis? And do you see their insights continuing in the discipline after Smith or receding out of focus? Yeah, no, that's really uh, an important point. So I think that even just from a, a, a merely economic or just a practical perspective, they were um, kind of closer um, in their writings to like the, the common man, you could say. And so they saw um, just in, in the lives of, of probably their parishioners and the people that they were teaching um, the necessity of um, relying on other people. And so mm -hmm. that's obviously going to entail um, family obligations. And that's one of the reasons like we identify um, the necessity of the family unit. Um, but one of the um, important things that they also saw, and this is Francisco de Vitoria made this claim, and this is actually the the quote that got me um, kind of down this and <laughs> down this path was that um, the right to provide for your children is so strong that actually that is why private property exists. And so he was saying that that is why you could, even if you're not personally starving, but your child is starving, you could take some bread or something like that. And, and there's an argument going on. And, and this is a long tradition, actually, in, in Christian thought, right? The idea that the right to private property is not absolute, which makes no sense if you think about it for a second anyway. I don't think anyone really holds this um, seriously. It, it um, is meant to preserve life. It's meant to provide right for for ourselves and other people, the needs of, of our dependents. And so uh, they took that really strongly and, and that definitely shows up in their teachings in that way, for instance. Um, but a really interesting way that they um, thought about private property and kind of its social functions um, was to identify it with um, some virtues. So specifically mm -hmm. hospitality and generosity. Um, they said, well, if you if you don't home, own a home, hospitality is kind of hard, right? You, you would necessarily um, be limited, right, in your ability to practice some of these virtues. And so we really need to pay attention to this. And then finally, another thing that they said is family obligations also should sort of temper our judgment of other people, their use of property, et cetera. So Francisco de Vittoria, while he says it could be right, you know, it could be you have a natural obligation um, to take food if you absolutely need it to feed your children. Um, you can't necessarily trust people, though, he would say in the next sentence, um, to look at someone's life and say, oh, they have too much property so I can take some for myself. And the reason he gives is that they might have a lot of children. So um, he sees that this, like, there's this just very natural, right? You know what? I, it's kind of every day, this um, common sense connection between private property and the family. Um, and, but this also then will lead them to make this leap, which goes um, beyond then Thomas Aquinas and uh, is still kind of an ongoing debate, I guess, in, in the Christian tradition. Um, a lot of people on different sides, but um, some of the schoolmen, specifically Luis de Molina, would claim that uh, private property could have existed before the fall or it could exist in like an economy of angels, for instance, because 
Um, you could arrange for there to be private property just by consent. In fact, you might have good reasons to consent to there being private property for the reasons of virtue, practicing the virtues and living out your family obligations. Yeah, I believe uh, Suarez also um, has a whole, we published a few years ago a treatise of his on what life might, might have been like had there been no fall, right? And he gets into things like, he affirms kind of what people think of as the Lockean doctrine of labor uh, being the origin of property, that if, you know, by combining your labor with the resources of the world, it becomes your property. So he think, you know, he seemed to kind of concur with that as well, that um, there might be even private property um, had there been no fall. Uh, your comment about, or his comment, you know, Vittoria's comment about judgment is interesting in that I feel like I've experienced that in my life and that. I grew up pretty lower class, grew up in a, um, you know, blue collar suburb, but also raised by a single mother. You know, we lived in an apartment till she got remarried in eighth grade when I was in eighth grade. But I remember seeing like big houses and thinking, who could ever need a house that big? Uh, well, now I'm 39 and my wife and I have four kids. Uh, and a year ago, we got a bigger house because the house we were in was definitely too small. Like it was, it was genuinely a need to get a bigger house. And I looked back and realized how judgmental I had been just living in this different circumstance and not being the provider and not being the sort of person that is worried about, well, how do I take care of all my kids and how do I have space? And uh, realizing that I probably, you know, walked by or drove by, you know, houses and, and jumped to a lot of really unfair conclusions uh, in in my past, just because I hadn't been in that situation myself, uh, so I I would concur with him uh, on that or second his point. Um, so in your paper, you also spent some time examining uh, the Roman Catholic tradition of distributism associated with G.K. Chesterton and Hilaire Belloc, um, the early twentieth century thinkers. Um, we've we've often been cr critical of distributism in the past here at Acton. Uh, at least to the extent that its proponents have branded it as a sort of third way between socialist and classical economics. Um, but our friend Alex Salter has recently attempted to recast distributism as more of a normative political economic perspective rather than its own school of positive economics. Uh, would you concur with that? And in either way, what might the distributists have gotten right about the connection between family and property? That's interesting. Uh, just to your first story, I was also thinking very personally as I was writing uh, this paper, just because I've recently become a parent and it was really, I think, easy to have silly ideas about property and like the necessity of, of kitchens and things like that, of, of cars and whatever, until you have dependents, until you have children. And it just puts it all into relief. So um, that's, that's awesome. But on uh, Alex Salter's excellent book, I think... Um, I, I generally agree with him. I think he is a very generous reader of the tradition of distributism, which is an excellent virtue on Alex's part. Um, I, I think I have more concerns with making sure that um, before we explore the normative dimensions, just making sure that we have the positive economic straight. I think that that's a big task that we have today is... Um, educating, even starting in high school and middle school, really educating students on just basic economic principles, I think is really important and really a disservice if we don't do that. And then I think it can be really interesting to have these debates over distributism. And I think researchers should. Um, I just don't think that those debates are 
as fruitful when you, when they come right before, before the facts, maybe of the matter before the learning. So that's how I think about it. But in my paper, I actually uh, treat distributism and Marxism as um, in the same section as kind of two extreme views of this um, argument that private property is essential to the family institution. So both of these schools, and obviously actually distributism was responding in in um, quite a, a straightforward way to communist thought. And, um, and so this isn't, you know, this isn't my construction, but both of these schools of thought claim and, and recognize, um, to their credit, I think actually, that there is an intrinsic connection, a really fundamental connection between the family and private property. Um, communists, Mark, like Engels actually really emphasized this and said, that's why we need to do away with private property, right? If we just knock out private property from society, actually the family and even religion, he said later, right, those things will tumble down as well. And that's really going to free the individual. Um, by taking away private property, you free the individual because you um, individuals are right, kind of constrained in their family units. That's the idea, right? We don't want anyone to depend on anyone else um, besides the state. Um, and then distributists took the flip side, the, the other extreme, saying the family is almost the familial function of property is the only worthy kind of use of property or um, focus of property, right? Sort of neglecting the role of corporations in owning property and um, and just other sorts of business ventures. And so um, I think that the distributist view, though, made a really important contribution, which comes up later in Catholic social thought, which is that private property does allow families and individuals, of course, but really families to live out their own vision of the good. So we would say really to live out this, um, this liberty that is um, a right of the human person, right? To have autonomy, to decide, you know, what kind of education your children are going to have. Um, Chesterton has some funny examples in his writing to decide if you want to just, you know, sit on your living room floor and eat dinner one night or, you know, whatever you want to do. Um, as a family, property is going to allow you to have that freedom, which is another important part um, of respecting parental rights, um, as it later comes up in, in the CST tradition. Um, so that's how the distributists were writing um, about, about private property and the family. I definitely think they got a lot of things right, um, but I think that they, they forgot the other arguments, right, for private property that are more, more familiar. Yeah, I... I've so I've been at Acton now for 12 years um, and, you know, we love free markets here, free market economics. Uh, but I discovered uh, that the vast majority of my job in terms of the, the public facing kind of persuasive aspect of it is just trying to get people those basic economic principles that, you know, I got some big disagreements with Paul Krugman, but he at least understands the importance of private property. He knows about gains from trade. You know, there's all sorts of ways in which I would disagree on, you know, uh, monetary theory or whatever. But that's actually pretty secondary to just getting those basics right. And, you know, there's a there's a different sort of conversation you can have. And um, more often than not, I encounter people that they just don't even have those those basics. They haven't even covered them. And the, to the point where economists of vastly different political perspectives would actually agree on something that they're disagreeing with. Um, so that is that is definitely, I think, uh, going to be a lifelong task <laughs> for a lot of us. But um, but a really important point uh, that I, d I do 
I do really appreciate Alex's kind of recasting of distributism, although I, you know, I, I'm probably less sympathetic of it. I'm there's kind of an agrarian aspect to it that just doesn't appeal to me. I grew up in Grand Rapids isn't a big city, but it's not small either, and I'm just not a rural guy. So I think cities are great, and I don't want to own a farm someday. I don't want to raise my own food. It's just not it's not for me. Um, so. But I, so I think he's done a great job and we, you know, building bridges and, and looking at the positive side. But yeah, that, those basic principles, I think, are really, really important. Um, so more broadly than distributism, uh, you also examine the relationship between family and property in modern Roman Catholic social thought. Um, so how did someone like Pope Leo XIII see the importance of private property for the family in his 1891 encyclical, Rerum Novarum? Uh, and how did later popes build on that foundation? Absolutely. So um, private property has a very important role in Catholic social thought and Catholic social doctrine as well, um, which is actually unique because a lot of times um, the church, I think rightfully, is hesitant to comment on issues of economic policy or social policy um, because these things can be just matters of prudence, right? And, and really context dependent and not necessarily issues of doctrine um, or even discipline. But um, private property is actually a, kind of above this. And so Rerum Navarum comes out very strongly and says, this is part of the natural order, private ownership of material goods, part of the natural order, meaning, you know, this is um, designed by God actually to fulfill this thing called the universal destination of goods, which is that the purpose of all of the resources and the actually the talents we have in our persons is to serve the needs of ourselves, right? To provide for ourselves and our dependents. And, and so private property, there is kind of a vehicle. Um, people have a right to private property, but there's also this social aspect, right? This social obligation. Um, the quote that I always find really striking from Rerum Novarum, and that made me realize that it's it's the perfect sort of uh, picking up of this tradition that was started by the late scholastics, is that um, Pope Leo the Great will say um, that it's the most sacred law of nature that a father should care for the children whom he has begotten. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, re- that's really strong language. And that's also, um, I think, just gets right to the heart of the role of private property, which is that um, of course, you can't provide for someone, right, if you don't have the means to do that. And interesting later developments, John Paul II does a lot of this um, in, in his encyclicals, will say, um, you know, we shouldn't have too constrained of a view of property. Property can actually be, and we recognize this, right, in like finance too, or, or economics, it can be tangible or intangible. It could be something like human capital. So it's not that you have to own, right, the farm, right, yeah. or the land, thank goodness, right, because I'm I would be horrible at that as well. Um, but it's that you have your your human capital or you have certain talents or you just have intangible assets, right? You invest in other companies or things like this, right? It's the stock market. And that's also another way that you can provide um, for your family, for your children. And so um, I think a lot of times the, the, the task of Catholic social thought has been to sort of keep... Um, impressing upon, right, the the faithful, the Catholics, right, the importance of private property as the economy has changed so much, right? Because it really has changed since the 16th century, of course, since the 18th century, right, since the 20th century. And so how do we um, still um, articulate and still understand the importance of private property in an economy, for instance, where, again, most people aren't going to be owning a lot of land, 
but they might um, be engaged in really valuable service occupations, right? And so making sure we're staying updated there. Um, so that's a little bit about, yeah, in, in Pope Leo, Rerum Novarum, Trentissimus Annus, um, and some of the other uh, John Paul II encyclicals, you find this, um, but it's definitely a common thread. Um, it's also in the compendium and it's also in the catechism. So those are two kind of, you know, really important handbooks um, for Catholics. And so you do find really strong um, support for private property there. And not only because the more kind of common argument for private property, which is that, you know, we would um, compete in violent ways if we didn't have private property, but really because of the social aspect, this familial aspect, which is that because it allows parents to have to fulfill their duties, right? To provide, and they'll list the duties explicitly, providing an education, right? Providing shelter and actually raising them in the faith as well. Um, and so this is a, I think a really important thing not to forget um, as we as we start thinking about, right? The importance of the family and society. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned John Paul II. Um, he spoke often about the need to promote a culture of life in opposition to what he saw as, you know, a prevalent culture of death in the world. What do you mean by those terms, and and where would modern economics fit into this, specifically with reference to the family and private property? That is a great question, and I've I've always loved this phrase from John Paul too, but I, I have never um, written about it. So I'm going to give you just my impressions and great. kind of my reflections. Yeah. So. Um, the way I see, and and because you know I'm I'm an economist and I believe my vocation, professionally speaking, right, is to to teach and to do research in economics. Um, the way I see that um, dovetailing with economics is actually um, is, is in a couple of ways, both spreading you know sort of the the intellectual life, of course, is is part of um, building a culture of life. Um, so I think that that's an important aspect, but also because. I think there are a lot of ideologies that, again, are not built on sound economic um, principles, which means that they're against common sense and that they can't stand in reality, but um, they still can exist in the mind, right? So there's a lot of ideologies that are anti-human and, and kind of encapsulate this culture of death. And this might be um, straightforward or this might be um, just really obvious. So a really obvious example would be kind of the idea that there are too many people in the world or of mm -hmm. overpopulation or um, this, you know, something like we need to um, involve ourselves in other countries to reduce their populations, which is absolutely something that the United States, for example, has been involved in, in the past. And so um, I think that one really important thing that both Catholic social thought and economics has been pretty united on is that um, there is not an inherent competition between uh, human life and economic growth or economic prosperity. In fact, there's a very strong um, connection and um, complementarity. So we know that the source of economic growth is the human person. And I think John Paul II, to, to get back to it, even his personal experiences with communism, I think really understood this at a visceral level that um, human beings have the ability to be fruitful and to multiply. And this can mean, um, you know, using your mind to be entrepreneurial, to start new endeavors, to have ideas for ways to do more with less. And so economists look at that and say, yeah, like that's how economic growth happens. You do more with less. You have that idea. That's really the only sort of truly um, 
the source can, that can be said to be the source of economic growth um, is, is the human mind that's free to um, experiment with these things. And so um, I think that that's um, part, partly what I, what I would um, say, I think is the overlap. And I think out of all the popes, John Paul II, especially again, because of his experience of living in a situation where there was not private property um, rights that were respected, also not religious liberty rights that were respected or familial rights that were respected. He had a really special appreciation for all of this and a really special appreciation for the way that all of these things, and so this speaks to Acton's um, core principles of religious liberty and economic liberty, they all work together. Like mm -hmm. you don't get religion or the family without private property. Engels knew that, right? John Paul II was saying this, right? Everyone's saying this. So these things are all really connected. And I think the nexus actually does come down to something like private property um, in in a just a social um, and kind of a legal, in a legal way. I think private property is just so important for all of those things. So yeah, almost answers my next question already. Um, but, you know, I, I there are people... You know, the, the Marxist example certainly was the experience of John Paul II um, growing up in Poland uh, during uh, the Cold War. Um, and But there's also people on the, the libertarian side who don't maybe get the they – might, they might understand the importance of property, but not necessarily the importance of the family. Um, what is it about these schools of thought that lead them to miss this important connection between family and property? Right, because you'd think if you love property and its purpose is the family, you should be supporting both, right, um, and and vice versa. Um, or do they maybe understand it, but they judge it to be a bad thing instead of good, such as angles, as you mentioned. Um, you know, it seems intuitive to me. You mentioned that it's common sense, and I'm sure many of our listeners probably feel the same way. But uh, you know, how is it that some people just don't get it? Why why is it that it, this is something that you know this basic you know, common sense principle, but even this basic teaching of economics that private property is useful, is good, um, that it's it's foundational from a religious side for, you know, the autonomy of the family, the responsibility of parents to care for their children. How is it that some people just don't get that? Because this is something that keeps coming up, right? It's not as if Marxism had its try and now people are like, oh, that was a bad idea. I wish that were the case. I don't know why that isn't the case, but somehow it isn't. Um, so what's your read on that? That's absolutely right. Um, yeah, I wish I wish that was the case. But um, there obviously is, it's a very good question because there obviously is something attractive in these positions and um, some fundamental error we could say, or even heresy, natural heresy is sometimes the language that like the church will use about um, different ideologies that view private property as pernicious um, that, that keep cropping up. And so... I think there are a couple of reasons. I think it's it's probably right that very few people genuinely dislike private property and like the family. Although I do think it's possible that a lot of people dislike um, what the church, for instance, would say is like true freedom, which is what Chesterton would say is the freedom to bind yourself. And so the idea that our, um, we are free to choose, but, you know, there are always going to be costs associated with choice, right? There's no free lunch. This is the world that we live in. And, and that's actually better for us in the end. So those types of things. I think there's definitely something like that going on that it can be scary, right, to have, you know, people depend on you or to have pro property rights or to see other people with really big houses, right? That, that mm -hmm. kind of thing. 
difficult. Um, but then the, I think there's also this, um, um, it comes back to kind of missing the connection um, in this way. And so the common understanding of the use of private property is only one half of the story. So I think that that's really the half that's understood and, and then um, rejected, which is that it would reduce, it reduces violence in society. It reduces kind of the, the competition um, because of greediness, right, in humankind. And I think that, and to use kind of some Thomas Sowell um, imagery, right, this is kind of an idea, a lot of these schools of thought have this idea of the perfectibility of man. So mm-hmm. we don't need private property if we can get away with, if we can get rid of the greediness, right, in, in, in man and in, in the human heart. And um, so if you think that, then maybe, and you think that that's the only reason you have private property, then maybe it makes sense, right, to then just focus on the source of the problem, right? The, you know, maybe the social upbringing or, um, you know, whatever the the reasons are, right? That someone would be um, uh, kind of violent and try to acquire property. But that's why I think sort of the familial argument for private property comes in in a really important way, which is that there's another reason we have private property that doesn't require us to believe that mankind is fallen. It's actually that it's actually kind of a knowledge argument. It's the fact that things, and this is Aquinas actually who explained it this way, um, things are just going to be ordered more efficiently when each person has his own responsibility. And we can see this really clearly in the family, especially because the the disconnect, the difference between the knowledge that I have of the needs of my daughter, is so different than I would have of the needs of anyone else's child, then it makes so much sense, right? That I care for her needs, that I'm the one who's tasked with caring for her needs. Um, But we can think about this in other ways. And so some of the late scholastics would even say, you know, in the same way that we care for our, you know, country, we love our country because it's our country and we know it's flaws and imperfections, but we're better at running our own country and caring for our own, you know, issues than anyone else, right, from the outside. So it's this this knowledge argument. And I think that that is um, an important thing to recover in this discourse because um, it's very hard to get around, right? You can argue maybe that that um, men can be perfected, but we know that there's going to be limits to our knowledge. That's just something that, you know, really you can't, you can't get around, Um and um, and then I think that it's important to recover also an appreciation for really the function of the family and society, that it's not just a nice accessory that I have like, oh, it's really nice. I had this really big wedding and, you know, now it's really fun because I get to, you know, you know, own a house and do all of these types of things. But really the, the really important role that family members play in society and especially that parents play in society, I think there's an increasing ap- appreciation for this um, with the conversations around pro-family policy. Um, but really understanding that they are the, the function that allows for caring of dependents, right? So caring of the poor, right? The, the babies, right? Who really mm-hmm. have no way of, of caring for themselves and um, the importance of that, that, um, that efficient, efficient, activity that goes on in the household of parents caring for their own children. Um, I think appreciating those two things, again, that that familial argument for private property, 
Um, it's never going to be a panacea, um, but I, I do think would at least allow more more people to appreciate the role of private property. Yeah, I I always think of how when our oldest child was born, my wife and I looked at each other and we were like, what were we doing with our lives, right? Like we re- suddenly realized how much free time we had had on our hands that we had been squandering. Um, and suddenly I was like, well, I better finish my master's degree and I better make a career out of this job. And I bet, you know, you, you suddenly have this amazing motivation to be productive. Um, and I think that's one of the, the mistakes behind the overpop. There are people who, who pushed, you know, um, population control, uh, who were perfectionists. So like Julian Huxley at the, in the UN in the mid 20th century was actually a prominent eugenicist. Uh, and I believe he coined the term transhumanism. Um, so he really believed that people in, you know, humanity could be perfected um, in some kind of scary ways. Uh, but there's also people like, I mean, Malthus, uh, for, from whom we get the term Malthusianism, he was a pastor. Like he wasn't talking about, um, you know, using even birth control or abortion. He was like, well, we should just get people more educated because then they'll wait before they have kids and then there'll be fewer kids and they'll, you know, this sort of thing. He was living at a time before the sort of um, agricultural production uh, that we enjoy today. Um, so it made a little more sense in his time. Uh, but since then, there are people I really like, like Wilhelm Rupka, Kenneth Boulding. These are great economists who actually still worried about overpopulation. Um, but I think that that connection between when you when you link it to the family and you put it in that context, I don't see how that the productivity side does not then become part of the common sense of it, right? That um, I need property because I need to provide for my kids. And if I have kids, I need to provide for them, which means I need to be productive uh, in a way that you don't have to be when those those connections, whether it be between the father and mother are severed or between, you know, the provision and uh, childbearing, when those things get separated, suddenly you you take away one of the strongest motivations, I think, for productivity. You are describing actually what it's found in in the thread of the family economics literature, which is that men start to earn more when they have children. Um, women usually tend to cut back on their working, their formal working hours. Again, making sense, they're investing their you know their time. But yeah. men are investing their treasure, their talents, and in, in a different way. And um, I think that it also speaks to the point of children being an experience good. So I always want to be, um, you know, I I also was surprised, you know, when I had my first child that actually how, how, um, it really reordered my priorities and kind of just changed completely my perspective of formal work. You know, it was something I did for her all of a sudden and and something instead of something I'm doing for myself. Mm -hmm. And, um, but I didn't know that before. And so I think that there's a really important learning component that we just need to tell people about like, Hey, you know, you're young, you might want to have children, but just remember it could totally change your perspective. So (laughs) Um, that also needs to be said. Um, but, oh, and then the last part that I just couldn't help because I I love this conversation. I think it's such a good case study of, um, where, you know, a little bit of, um, intuition, economic intuition can go wrong, specifically like with Malthus doing the math and saying, Hey, the math doesn't, doesn't check out. Um, which is that, uh, Julian Simon's a really good resource on, um, thinking about 
the role of population growth and economic growth. And he really pointed to the family consistently saying, well, look, this is the group that also bears most of the costs. And they don't even enjoy, you know, the majority of the benefits. Like uh, usually it's the public who enjoys the fact that there's another worker, another person demanding goods and services, another taxpayer in society. Um, And so um, it's really important to recognize that actually imbalance. Maybe we're, um, you know, if anything, he said that the data suggests that we are under providing the good of children, not over over providing Mm. it. Mm. I like that. Um, So there's a lot of talk today uh, on the left and the right about the importance of pro-family public policy, usually involving proposals such as expanding paid family leave for maternity and paternity or increasing the child tax credit. Uh, But it sometimes also includes uh, things like raising the minimum wage to represent a family wage, a wage large enough that one person, presumably the father, could be the sole breadwinner, uh, or even additional monetary incentives for couples to have children. Uh, So it's almost the opposite of some of the mid-20th century fears. Um, We see diminishing populations, especially in like Scandinavia, where they have a lot of these pro-family policies. But also like Hungary, I know, has has quite a bit of this. Um, Do these proposals follow from your analysis of the late scholastics and Catholic social thought on the economic importance of the family? Or might there be other less emphasized proposals that you'd want a pro-family policy to address in the light of your, your research? Great. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, I, I didn't get into to family economics and especially this paper thinking it would be politically relevant, but it ended up being so. And I think it, it really took below replacement fertility rates for a lot of people to wake up and say, oh, you know, maybe these economists aren't crazy. You know, something is very serious is going on that could threaten um, prosperity and economic progress going and living standards, quite frankly, going forward with de- declining fertility, not to mention, right, the importance of, of carrying on the human um, race. But um, <laughs> so from a pro-family policy perspective, I, I unfortunately think a lot of the um, the proposals, um, and they're mostly proposals in the United States. Um, you mentioned a couple of countries who are really implementing this and putting a lot of lot of funding behind it. Um, unfortunately, I think that they they get a couple of things wrong. So I'll just try to mention maybe a few. Um, I think the most in, important thing is that um, they don't understand um, what opportunity cost is, right? Mm-hmm. What the, actually the cost of the choice to have a child is, um, not just the cost of giving, you know, food, shelter and things like that, which are important, but those are probably declining, right? Those are, it's actually never been, um, you know, we've never been wealthier as a glo- global society. Um, thank goodness, right? Um, extreme poverty is on on the decline. And it's um, a lot of things like progress in infant, lowering infant mortality and maternal mortality rates also just makes it really um, actually a, a great time to have kids. But you actually give up though, um, kind of things that you thought were your identity. And I, I'm taking some of this, um, you know, from my own perspective, and it sounds like from your perspective as well, but um, uh, Catherine Pakulik's a, a, um, a professor has been doing really important work on this. And uh, she has a book coming out soon called Hannah's Children, where um, you really do hear if you talk to parents um, and especially mothers, um, you know, the full opportunity cost of the choice to have children is something like yourself, right? It's not, <laughs> right. It's not like a, yeah. it's not like a thousand dollars every month. So, 
Um, that's unfortunately, I think, going to be very expensive if we want to approach it from from just a financial cost perspective instead of the true, you know, economic opportunity cost perspective. Um, the second thing is, I also think that just to, when we're thinking about pro-family policy, um, having a one-size-fits-all answer can be really damaging. So um, sometimes countries think about like universal um, childcare or, um, you know, like you were saying, raising the minimum wage, right? These are getting at sort of targeted solutions, but unfortunately that can be very distortionary for the economy. Um, of course, minimum wage just lies about kind of the, the, the value of work and actually puts the most um, disadvantaged people out of work. Um, but I think that in my own research, I've really tried to focus on, I have this paper with uh, Lyman Stone, who's a demographer um, in Canada, and um, we look at economic freedom and the fertility gaps, the relationship basically between economic freedom, so um, private property rights, um, things like labor market freedom, right, choice in work, things like that, and then the fertility gap, which is the difference between how many children um, a woman will actually have, that total fertility rate, and then how many women she says that she desires or would be happiest with, mm. which you could get from survey data now. And it's actually really interesting. Fertility desires are above replacement, in some cases much higher. And so we know that something is going on. Like mm. there are there are things, I think, that are keeping families from, from achieving their fertility goals. Um but I think it's more of this broad approach, right? Respecting private property as, as this paper shows. And as that paper showed that um, when you have more economic freedom in a state that's associated with narrower fertility gaps. So more women achieving their fertility goals and having higher fertility. So um, I think that really remembering, right? Any policy that um, weakens private property rights is probably just going to be right giving with one hand and taking with the other. Hmm. But if you have more of a one size fits all solution, which is just strengthening private property rights or strengthening economic freedom, which could be you know allowing parents to match with work that might be more flexible, right, for them to fulfill their family obligations, then I think that there is more promise there. Um, um, what else? Oh, and then the last thing I would say is that it's also really important to recognize the the cultural messaging around these things. And that's harder to measure and to um, get at from sort of, you know, your classic empirical um, empirical perspective. But I think that there's really good work going on. Um, the Institute for Family Studies, for example, has published some of this on their blog. But there's a lot of things that suggest that messaging really matters. And again, the fact that children are an experience good, um, the fact that it, you just it, you know, it's not like nannying other people's kids, right? It's totally different when you have your own child. Um, um, and, and, and also the fact that peer effects in fertility really matter. So your community, um, the people you surround yourself with, actually their fertility is pretty predictive of yours. Mm. Um, it's also really important, I think, moving forward, you know, maybe freeing things like um, having more educational freedom and allowing parents to pick schools up will surround their children with peers who have the same values as them. And then um, also religious freedom again. And in those religious communities, we know that they're more religious people do have higher fertility. And so we really need to dig into that and, and understand why and try to explain why and see what's going on there. Yeah. 
So uh, Claudia Golden won the Nobel Memorial Prize in economics for 2023 for her analysis of the history of women in labor markets. Some traditionalist religious critics of feminism today might contend that what some see as the advancement of women in our economies and the rise of the, the two-income household, um, and I would add, uh, uh, sorry, uh, has come at the expense of the family. Um, now, you're both a wife and mother and an economist. You're, you, know, you have a profession. Um, and I will add that my wife, uh, mother of our four children, owns and runs her own business. I'm very grateful for her income. I can tell you that. Uh, I think it's a good thing for our family. Uh, but am I wrong about that? Um, is our current culture of work implicitly anti-family? So this is great. Um, I think in some ways, yes, and in some ways, no. So I think part of the discussion um, about um, that comes from sometimes even like we were talking about distributism earlier, more distributist um, areas in society or, or different ways of thinking about this more agrarian, um, sometimes get just history wrong. And um, it's it's very true that, um, and it's you can see this in census data, for instance, and there's been a lot of work on women working um, over time. Um, women were absolutely contributing in a lot of ways in, a, in, in the formal workplace um, to their households far, far back into time, like um, since really since we've been measuring it with censuses. Um, and so the idea that there's this um, really, really like a, uh, I don't want to say it's a, a uh, well, I should, uh, this is probably the right word, a specialization that's just very extreme where a, the wife quite literally stays home, you know, and then just does work around the home and cares for the children, which of course is very backbreaking labor sometimes. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, the the husband will then go out right into the world and, and do work there. Um, that's uh, only something that's existed for a short period of time. That's really something that we see in the data in countries when they um, get to sort of a middle income sort of um, uh, GDP per capita level. But then as we get into more advanced economies where women can contribute their time and talents, right? One half of the whole uh, adult population can start to really contribute their time and talents to um, serving others in society, even beyond their children, um, with especially with service sector jobs jobs that don't require as much brawn, but more brain, um, then you see more women go back into the formal labor force, right? So first of all, I think it's really important to get the history correct. And Claudia Golden has done fantastic work. Um, I am I'm a big fan of her work um, in correcting that narrative as well. Um, but another thing that she points out, and she has a great book out called Career and Family that I would, I would recommend to any listener, um, which looks at the phenomenon, um, it goes through five generations of women and their relationship to family and work and how sacrifices really were made and in a lot of ways um, for uh, the previous generations of women, but how women have realized that there's, you know, there's a biological clock, they're becoming better educated about a lot of those things, thank goodness. And um, a lot of work is becoming more flexible, temporal flexibility. She's uncovered, discovered that it's really important to women to have temporal temporal flexibility in a career and that this can allow women to kind of achieve right both things um but the one thing that she says and i do kind of tend to agree with this um that is uh, pretty antithetical in the working world um to family life 
is this thing called greedy work, which she says is just those professions where you just have to devote your whole self, right? Again, coming back to like really deciding what your identity is and yourself is, right? There are some professions and you really can't get away from that, you know, that you really just have to devote your whole self to them. Um, And actually the catechism recognizes this. So the catechism says this explicitly. And I find this very important actually in in today's conversations about fertility, because I, I don't think it's, you know, right to tell everyone, right, that they should have children. Some people are called to devote themselves to their professional careers and actually forego um, family life. And that can be a very noble calling. Um, and we should recognize that. And we should not try to, you know, really shove kind of these these jobs that just can't be done in any other way, right, into these um, molds. Again, these one size sort of fits all solutions, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, there are certainly some jobs, right, that I, I wouldn't be able to have, you know, as many children as I would like and be as open to life if I had them. And then I would make, you know, have to make difficult decisions. But luckily um, today, and I just am always so grateful. I really do think it's in a lot of ways, it's never been easier um, to be a working parent and, and have children. Hmm. Yeah, I, your point about certain professions um, being incompatible with family life the church invented monasticism <laughs> right um and it and it, it actually has been incredibly economically important uh, and productive in its own way but one of the basic requirements of course is that you don't get to have a family life right um so that's a really good point a, a good kind of counterbalance i think to to going too far in the other direction um i've basically one last question I, i'll do two last questions i think um so to kind of get beyond policy, you know, policy is a matter of politics, um, and often economic analysis is directed towards the reform of our current public policy. Uh, but the family pre-exists the state, and society as a whole can't be reduced to the state. In fact, that's the definition of totalitarianism to, when you when people do that. Um, so, what's the re- relation between familial liberty, as you've called it, and political and religious liberty? And I think you've already touched on some of this. Uh, what are the implications of your research for advocates of a genuinely free society today? Yep, this is really important. Um, so I, uh, some of my previous research has focused on the case of Soviet Russia. So I'll, I'll probably touch on a little bit of that in my answer, because I think that's a really good example of um, sort of genuinely trying um, this, this Marxist ideal of no private property, um, no family, and no religion. Um, and then actually trying to reverse course and trying to incentivize um, family life and childbearing without property and, and religion and finding that that doesn't work. So I think that the connection is something like private property is is this form of both familial liberty, but I, and I don't get the, into this as much in my paper, but also religious liberty. So just like families need private property in order to make their own decisions, to chart their own course, right, to provide for their dependents, um, we can think of something like uh, monastic order is a great example of this, right? They don't have, you know, dependents in the sense of children. They they forego those goods, but instead they care for other poor in society, right? They're really often focused on something like, you know, the works of mercy, caring for um, you know, maybe the disabled or the sick or something like this, or just educating um, the ignorant. And so 
Um, the idea here is that those organizations, while they're not properly, you know, family, but families, they're corporations, and they also do need private property to function. And so um, it's really important for them to be able to provide services, right, to build those hospitals and those schools and to do so using their um, productive resources, right, and to have ownership of those resources and trade them if they so desire and invest in them. And so I think that there's a really um, just fundamental connection there with private property. And then I also think there's this connection with the family and religious organizations being um, just always inherently um, a little bit in tension with the state. So a little bit, um, you know, rebellious isn't the right word, but there's also there's always going to be this split loyalty. So the idea that um, you know, and the Soviet Union really struggled with this. Um, you know, we want people to be completely loyal, right, to this totalitarian state, which means they cannot, right, have um, anything that they place above this. They, they they can't care more about like their father, for instance. They the son should be willing to send their fathers to prison if they say things that are, you know, anti-communist. And so, really encouraging this very divisive. Um, sort of whispering, right? There's this book called The Whispers that really um, puts this into vivid detail, this um, sort of tattletailing on each other to the state. Um, and because of that, I think there's this, this competition, right, between the state, the family, and religion, um, especially because sometimes we can think that states can provide some of the goods that families and relig religious organizations provide right? So why does the, the monastic, well, monastic orders, and I guess the right, um, why is that religious order um, uh, running that hospital when the state could, you know, open a hospital? Why don't we have, you know, universal healthcare or something like this? And similarly, you know, why are parents, right, um, burdened with all these responsibilities of caring for children? Why don't we have universal childcare, right? And um, that's a pretty competitive relationship if you just think about it economically, because providers of goods and services are always in competition. Um, and the family does have the advantage, the comparative advantage in providing certain goods, but other goods it does outsource to religious institutions and the state, right? So the family, for instance, might not be the best institution to provide for a child's education at a certain point, right? So you outsource that to other, other organizations. Um, but I think it's really important that we keep all of these and um, institutions and the functions of them right distinct in our mind and understanding what really the role of each is supposed to be in a free society. Um, and then just to close with again the example of the Soviet Union is so instructive here, and just looking at the numbers is is always shocking. Um, at a certain point after, you know, disincentivizing family life and religion and, you know, saying it's all hogwash and, and you know, restricting your freedom, all of this, um, Stalin realized that there were these grave um, uh, sex imbalances. So a lot of men had died in the war and, you know, through his great purges or sent to the gulag. So there were too many women. Mm -hmm. And then also there were just not enough births. There was a declining population. In fact, he tried to get the census, you know, done over. You could think of like, you know, China, like, you know, sometimes you you want to see the right numbers, but he realized that there was declining population and um, decided to try to incentivize childbearing with cash benefits, honorary titles, things like this. And none of it, none of it worked, right? And, and really the only places that retained their fertility 
were actually sort of the Muslim satellite states, which had also been able to retain their religious practice um, because they just hadn't been targeted as explicitly as something like the Russian Orthodox. So Hmm. um, I think that knowing history can be really important for answering these questions. Yeah. Yeah, it reminds me of, I I like to bring up, uh, uh, as far as religion and property, uh, the Edict of Milan was actually not the first proclamation of freedom for Christians in ancient Rome. There was one in 311 uh, by Constantine and uh, Licinius. but nobody remembers that one. The church doesn't memorialize that one because the difference is, and it, it explicitly says this in the Edict of Milan, uh, the Edict of Milan acknowledged the property rights of the church. It is from that moment forward that Christians considered that, that themselves to finally be free in ancient Rome. Um, so I think that's a pretty strong statement as well about you know that, that centrality of, of property rights for liberty beyond uh, the the role of the state. And, and the church in many ways uh, may historically be the first non-family corporate entity <laughs> other than the state it, that whose property rights were acknowledged in the first place, right? Um, there, were, there were aristocratic estates and then there was the state and that was it. Um, so really, really important um, uh, historically as well. All right. So I want to conclude with just kind of like a, a free space uh, sort of uh, question um, like many academics, I'm sure you have more than just this one area of research. Uh, so to close the interview, uh, tell me about what else you've been researching. You know, what are you, what are you working on and what are you most excited about? Every academic's favorite question. Um, <laughs> I'll, try, I'll try not to go, go on too long. Uh, no, I'm teasing. So we got time. We're yeah, right. no, <laughs> um, I just have one other one other paper idea that I was actually thinking about in this conversation that really um, relates, um, which is I want to do a law and economic analysis of the medieval marriage contract. Mm-hmm. So just like um, thinking about kind of the role of the family and private property and religion. Um, actually, marriage used to be governed by religious organizations and not the state. Mm-hmm. So the state, you know, just reckon, you know, if, if you're married in the Russian Orthodox Church or the Roman Catholic Church, we, you know, recognize that. And um, and so looking at the development of that contract over time, and I'm using contract, of course, in just like the economic um, uh, meaning of the term, of obviously, um, you know, as a, as a Catholic, I see it as a covenant. Um, but looking at the development of, of that um, really document and how that changed from the Roman period um, throughout the medieval period and then afterward, and it really sort of solidified um, in the medieval period. And the reason I'm focusing on that um, also is because there's been this new literature um, in economics, and actually more broadly than economics, that identifies the laws of um, marriage, specifically banning kin marriage, so marriage between cousins, Mm -hmm. um, and really connects that to trade and actually um, a lot of the forces uh, that led to economic growth and that that really severe economic prosperity that we see focused on, on Western Europe and not so much in the rest of the world past a certain point of time. So I'm also interested in that. Um, to un- understand, you know, what is that contract? What were those, the reasons, for instance, that the church would ban something like kin marriage and really try to promote childbearing? And part of my answer so far, and this is a work in progress, but it touched on something we mentioned in our conversation, which is that monastic 
um, communities and just the religious orders and really the flourishing of even um, going beyond the tradition of hermitesses and hermits and things like that, um, they really started to take off during this time period. At the same time, mm. you can think of like the Council of Trent and other other big um, occasions when the marriage contract was um, outlined. And I think that the emphasis on um, fertility in marriage is is kind of a counterbalance to that emphasis on celibacy, right? And the celibacy requirements that started to um, become really prominent in those other parts of the church, right? For people who had chosen religious vocations. So I'm interested in those um, interplays as well and to kind of uncover the story there. Um, but yeah, so that's that's yeah. another project I'm working on. Thanks for asking. Cool. Yeah, well, well, we'll look forward to that paper as well. Then. <laughs> that's great. Well, our guest today has been Claire Piano. Claire, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. As always, thank you for listening. Our team loves putting this podcast together for you. It's encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you'd like to hear more of, including the kinds of topics you're interested in most. If you have comments, feedback, or ideas for a show topic or interesting guest, you can email our team at producer at actin.org. Until next week, for Acton Line, I'm Eric Cohn.